Hello, and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns. We are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Together, we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, and all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. On the show tonight is bowling phenom Jason Belmonte. Now, he is annihilating everyone on the pro bowling tour. He's number one in the world, and he's doing it, you've probably heard this part before, with two hands. I bet you didn't know you can bowl with two hands, because before I saw Jason, I didn't know you could either, to be perfectly honest with you. But he does, and he annihilates pins. I have no idea how many pins they go through in a Jason Belmonte match, but it's a lot. That's all I'm going to say. Before we get to Jason, let's do a little bit of business. You can uh, follow the show, fascinatingnouns.com. You want to check it out, back episodes, new episodes, sign up for the newsletter, be caught up to date. Uh, you can check out my Twitter handle, at Daniel J. Glenn. You can look at Facebook, uh, facebook.com backslash fascinatingnouns. And you can catch up on everything that I'm doing. i got some upcoming episodes that are just going to be incredible, and I've done a whole bunch that I think you'll love. So check it out there. Now, if you love the show but do not want to go to the website, you're in luck. i got a plan of action for you as well. You can find me in two places. You can, uh, iTunes, obviously, Fascinating Nouns. You can subscribe there, never miss an episode. If you, want to avoid, if you want to avoid Apple products entirely, you can go to Stitcher.com or download the Stitcher app, and you can catch up with Fascinating Nouns there as well. Now, on to Jason Belmonte. Jason Belmonte. The one and only greatest bowler on planet Earth. Thanks for being here, buddy. Cheers, mate. Uh, what, a, what an intro. Thank you very much. You got it, man. Uh, so I detect a little bit of an accent. Is that you're not? This isn't. Uh, that's not a weird American accent, is it? <laughs> no, no. I'm not from the south of the USA. I'm uh, I'm from Australia, um, down under. Hey, oh. Well, let's talk about Australia, man, because I actually am fascinated with the culture that's there. And I don't know if your deadly personality on the lanes is because of the fact that you grew up in arguably the most dangerous place on the planet. Um, but tell me a little bit about Australia, because you still live there, right? You don't live in the States. You live in Australia. No, I still live in actually in the town that I was born. It's a small country town called uh, Orange in uh, New South Wales. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful little town. Australia's a beautiful spot. Australia gets such a bad rap, Daniel. We, Why? You know, everyone around the world thinks you come to Australia and you're lucky to survive it if you, uh, if you get out alive. But I can, look, I can assure <laughs> you, okay, in the 32 years that I've been alive, mm -hmm. you know, I've come across a, a few animals that could hurt me, but... You know, we get taught how to handle them, and we get taught how to protect ourselves, and we just stay away from them. That's what we do. <laughs> well, what's the average life expectancy in Australia? Is it, is it is it lower than anywhere else? It depends if you've got a brain, all right? If you go to the <laughs> Um, you know, trying to find treasure where snakes like to sleep, well, then you're more, more than likely not going to survive. But, you know, if you've got a head on your shoulders, and uh, if it looks scary, it probably is scary. So we just don't go there. But, um, you know, it's not the big animals either that you've got to worry about. It's more more the smaller ones like the spiders. But, you know, we spray and, uh, like I said, we check our shoes before we put them on and we, we don't leave anything out overnight. And, oh, look, I'm making this sound like it is a dangerous place. It's really not. It's really not. 
Well, so hold on a second here. You're talking about spiders. Let's 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 get into spiders, Jason. Uh, can I call you Belmo? What do you prefer? <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. Belmo's uh, fine. I'm gonna call you Belmo. I like it. Uh, so spiders. I've seen video and pictures of the Huntsman spider. Now, this is a spider that's arguably the size of a human head, and this is what you guys have as your regular house spider. What, what happens there? Do you guys just set up a room for it? Does it do you have a guest house? How does this work? <laughs> the Huntsman is not a bad spider. It's a big, hairy spider. It looks bad, but all it does is it jumps. It doesn't – I mean, if it bites you, it, it hasn't got um, – uh, poison, so you know it might give you a bit of a sting, but you know you're not going to have to rush yourself to the hospital or anything. It's um, like I said, it's the it's the little spiders you got to worry about. Like the uh, the redback spider in particular is is a really nasty one, and you know if you get bit by one of those, yeah, sure you've got to you know race yourself to the hospital to get the antivenom. But the huntsman, it's scary. But I know a lot of people who play with huntsmans because you know they can't. They can't really sting you too badly, so and they're huge. They are big spiders, so you know they do freak a lot of people out. But they're harmless. But don't, did you say they jump? <laughs> they do jump. Yeah, they jump quite high. Um, actually, my, my, my family uh, grew up, or I grew up, um, on my family's orchards, apple orchards. Um, so you get a lot of tree jumping spiders, and they used to freak you out as a kid when you're playing in the orchards, and this spider just jumps out in front of you. That used to freak you out, but once you realize what it was, you're like, oh, I'll leave you alone, and uh, I'll continue to do my thing. <laughs> All right. One other question about spiders. Now, off we spoke another time, and you told me this great story uh, about how you basically discovered the Jaysantete Belmontete spider. Uh, it was an undiscovered spider, previously undiscovered spider that almost took your life. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it was actually a pretty scary time. I, I flew in from overseas from competing, uh, and I was driving home. It was late in the night, like 2 in the morning, and I live about four hours from Sydney's airport. So... Um, you know, I'm driving along and I felt this thing on my hand. I thought it was a moth. So I, I wound down my window um, and I flicked my hand out the window thinking, well, the moth will be gone. And when I brought my hand back in, I felt it still move. And it it shocked me because I could feel it. Now I knew it wasn't a moth. Now I knew it was a spider. And, and it bit me. Um, <laughs> so I pulled over and I had a, uh, a Coke bottle. Um, a glass Coke bottle in the car, and I had to I had to capture this thing. So one of the things that um, you know you, you try to do is if you get bitten by anything, you know if it's possible and safe um, to take a picture of it or even capture it if you're you know lucky enough, um, you know you can take that to a hospital and they can you know see what kind of spider it is, or even yourself if you're familiar with them, you can kind of see what they are and go okay that's what it was. I'll I'll tell the doctor you know that's the kind of spider. So. You know, I pulled out on the side of the road, turn all my lights on, I'm looking for this thing, and all of a sudden I see this the angriest spider I've ever seen. It was on its <laughs> back legs, it wanted nothing to do with me, it didn't want me to touch him, it didn't want me to... I'm like, well, you look pretty bad, so I better <laughs> capture you. So I chuck him in this Coke bottle, I take him to the nearest hospital, um, meanwhile I'm checking my hand every five seconds to make sure it's still there. And um, I get to the hospital, show the, uh, the doctor the spider, they do some tests, they uh, come back to me and they say, look, we, uh, we don't have this spider on record. We, we don't know what it is. Um, so we don't know if it's venomous, if it's not venom, and we certainly don't want to give you the wrong anti-venom. So it's probably best just to drive home. And I was about oh, still three hours away from home. 
says, just check your hand every now and then and make sure it hasn't gone black or hasn't, you know, hasn't grown in size. So, yeah, I was flicking the light on every 15 minutes making sure that, you know. So I ended up keeping him for like, I don't know, a few days in the Coke bottle because I'm like, well, if something does happen to my hand, it's like a, a slow, slow killing venom. I want to yeah. make sure I've still got this fella. So. I was trying to feed him dead flies and he didn't like it and he ended up dying. I felt bad, but I, I survived. The spider didn't. So one to the humans, none to the spider. Well, hold on a second. So this, so this spider, no one knew about it. I mean, you didn't want to take it to like a science place and like have this thing named after you or anything? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I'm totally that serious. I, I honestly wasn't that interested in the spider as long as I survived. And my hand didn't fall off because, as you know, as a bowler, you need your hands. Right. So I was quite happy. And then, yeah, then he died. So then we just do what we do with all dead spiders and just, you know, throw them down the toilet. Well, it is true. Most bowlers need their hand. You need your hands, which we're going to get to in one second. I do want to say one last thing on Australia, which blows my mind. So, so you are 17 hours ahead of us. You have to come to the States all the time to bowl because you're on tour here all the time does that ever like completely mess with you um well i've been traveling uh, you know around the world since i was 16 uh so it's been 16 years in the air um you, you certainly get used to it i tend to try to be smarter now than i ever used to be you know i try to book flights that land in the morning because i'm a good sleeper on a plane so i like mm. to land in the morning so I hopefully catch a few hours on the plane sleeping and then I land and then survive the first day and then I'm generally okay. It's when I land in the wrong times, like if I've had a good sleep um, and I land at 10 o'clock at night, then it's really difficult to obviously fall asleep when I'm in the hotel mm -hmm. and then function for the rest of the week. But no, I'm certainly used to it. I, I don't like it. I mean, the it does knock you about a little bit, but... Mm. You know, until America and the rest of the world gets a little closer to Australia, I'm just going to have to put up with it. <laughs> that is that is true. Uh, so let's. So you've bowled once or twice. Um, now, what was the bowling scene like in Australia, either growing up, and then how, what is it like now after the phenomenon of Belmo has struck? <laughs> uh, all right, well, let's go back to the beginning. My uh, my parents built a bowling center not because they were bowlers or loved the game or anything like that. It was purely a business opportunity for them. Um, that kind of happened all by chance. So um, when bowling first came to to this town anyway, and and Australia in general, it was an extremely popular game, like it was everywhere in the world. I think now. Um, as technology, as there's more options for kids and for families to do. And, and obviously, we're all working more. We're working longer hours, working more shifts. Um, you know, t free time is, uh, is a luxury not many of us have. So in terms of the competitive bowler, it certainly isn't nearly as strong as it once was. But um, the family activity, the social side of bowling is on an increase. Um, and that's really good for the sport because that's kind of where you pull your competitive bowler from. You know, if, if there aren't new social players coming in, then it's uh, very difficult to um, educate them and, and explain the, the complexities of competitive bowling. And I can talk about that at length um, later on maybe. But, you know, you need to draw from a... a a source and social play is one of them. So we're seeing in my hometown um, an increasing competitive play because we've been able to convert those once or twice a year bowlers into weekly bowlers. Um, and hopefully that trend will continue around the country and around the world. But 
as it is, I think, as an entire trend, um, you know, the competitive side is probably just on its way up very, very slightly after falling for many years, but the social side is on a very steep incline. Yeah, I would imagine so, because even, you know, it's not like you're the only Australian celebrity, but, you know, you're doing so well. And, and you know, all joking aside, are kind of a phenomenon that I would imagine that, especially in Australia, where people really are get behind the people from Australia, you guys are a great nation like that. I would imagine that there's got to be some people who are that the that the activity has really gained popularity tremendously in the past three four years. Well, I think you're right. I think Australia, by nature, they do really um, promote and look after their sportsmen. You know, um, we we tend to be a very sporting orientated country. Um, we're typically the underdog, so I think um, that's another reason why uh, Australia's you know Australians love their sportsmen because. You know, when we do get a victory or we do win something, it's against the bigger nations, yep. uh, in particular the U.S. Um, and yeah, the, the the Australian media has certainly been really kind to me. I think the biggest difference between the mainstream celebrities here and and I don't really think I'd call myself a celebrity, but myself is that the connection between the social play and the competitive play of bowling is still quite disjointed between the mainstream public. So. When people hear that I do what I do, for the most part, they're very intrigued and, and, and clueless to the fact of all these quite complicated parts of bowling. So, you know, with golf and with tennis, we kind of have that bridge. We understand how hard they hit it, how straight they hit it, how far they hit it, or how close to the line they can hit it. Um, and in bowling, that transition of education hasn't happened. That's something that I feel very strongly about and that Generally speaking, whenever I do do an interview or if I'm on television, I try to convey that message as, as clearly as possible. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Uh, so I don't know if you remember the poker boom that happened recently, but there was uh, there was an Australian guy. His name's Joe Hashem, and he was number one poker player in the world. You're number one bowling player in the world. Is there a number one in the world from Australia fan club that most people don't know about? <laughs> I don't know, but I do have a Joe Hashem story because really I, awesome. Yeah, I do. a lot of people think because you know we are a, a relatively small country in terms of the world. Um, I get asked a lot of these silly questions, in particular, like you know, <laughs> hey, I, I traveled to Australia, um, you know, fifteen years ago, and I met this guy Steve from <laughs> Melbourne. Do you, uh, do you know Steve from Melbourne? And and I get these questions, and obviously when Joe won the um, the World Series of Poker, it was a question that I got asked quite a lot if I knew Joe. And I kept saying, no, I've never met the guy, never met the guy, until one day I was bowling in Vegas, mm. uh, and he was at the Rio, and we were eating dinner, with, I was eating my dinner with my friends, and Joe sat at the table right next to me. Uh, and I turned around, looked at him, nodded my head, said g'day, he said g'day back, and from this day forth, I now say, I know Joe Hashem, and that's as far as the story went. That's it? <laughs> I thought it was, uh, at least now when I get asked that question, I've got a Joe story. <laughs> that's pretty, so no club, though. Uh, that... No club. Oh, no, okay. we form a club, and I don't know of any clubs uh, out there. Um, you should start one. I think you're the right guy for that. Um, so now, this, so this bowling alley that was started, uh, you, so your dad did it for strictly financial reasons, he wasn't aiming to create a prodigy. I mean, because even if he did it for business reasons, if he invested in you financially, you're kind of paying off for him as an investment. You know what I mean? 
Uh, but, well, yeah. Well, I think I think mum and dad, um, you know, they had no, I guess, uh, aspirations um, for me to be a, a, a professional bowler or anything like that. For for me, for them. They just wanted to make sure that I was out of their hair while they were working. And bowling was a great activity for me because that's all I ever wanted to do. Is if I wasn't at home, I was, uh, you know, at the bowling center and I'd just beg them to bowl. And I would bowl literally all day long. And when customers needed my lane, I used to chuck tantrums because I'm like, hey, this is, <laughs> this is my place. This is my, my lane. So, you know, I think as I was getting better and better, you know, we live in a small country town in Australia and the pro tour in the U.S. just seemed like such a a distant idea. Um, mm. But once I started traveling through Asia and I started to uh, to make a little bit of money myself uh, for myself when I was about 16, I think they saw potential and I was still just a kid. So I wasn't really looking that far mm. uh, into the future, but it was it was really from their guidance that that after I was winning a bit of money in Asia, they said, "Listen, you know, you could you could potentially do this for a career, and, and and maybe you could go to the pro tour. It's up to you now to, you know, I guess decide what it is that you want to do. And if it is bowling, then you know, start investing in yourself and start, um, you know, working harder and learning more about the game, and and not just." you know, being able to repeat shots because bowling is a very complicated game. There's a lot of things about bowling balls, about oil patterns, about cover stocks around bowling balls, cores, uh, weight blocks inside the bowling balls, different lane surfaces. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I, I did that and, um, you know, I started to invest in myself from an early age, stopped partying and, and I became, um, you know, really good at bowling. Well, and you do something where, you know, we've kind of um... – buried the lead here because one of the things you're known for uh is bowling with two hands which kind of makes the story you just told about the spider really scary in a way because had that could have been very dangerous you and and just a side note are, are your hands insured with lloyds of london or have you not gone that far because you first uh I'll, I'll comment on the insurance no i haven't insured my hands but um you know, I, it's probably not a bad idea. I, like those river dance guys who insured their legs. Maybe it's probably something I should look into. But um, no, that's right. I, I bowl with two hands. Um, and the best way to describe it without actually physically watching it live or, or on YouTube um, is if you can imagine a rugby pass where a player passes one ball to another, that kind of spiral torpedo. Um, but unlike your American football, it's thrown you know, kind of underarmed rather than, you know, over the shoulder. So that's how I do what I do. And um, it all started because my parents built that bowling center when I was uh, only three weeks old. So as I was growing up and I, I rolled my first balls on my own uh, at the age of 18 months and the bowling balls wow. we had way too heavy for me. So I couldn't use a traditional one-handed technique. I I developed this kind of two-handed role. And um, one of the things that it did for me that no one else in my town could do was curve the ball so much. It's the technique allows me to create many more revolutions than a traditional player. So um, I was curving the ball more than all my friends and ultimately – you know, I thought that was cool. So you know, I, uh, I never stopped. And um, for all the, the people that tried to convert me um, as a young fellow, I'm really glad I was stubborn um, and just did, you know, I just did what I did. 
So that's that raises a good question. Before we get into why bowling with two hands is better, which no one knew until you came along, we're going to touch on that in a second. How come you weren't converted? Because I imagine that there were so many people who wanted to teach you the fundamentals, especially as you got better. I imagine people wanted you to bowl, you know, the quote unquote correct way. Well, I don't think two-handed bowling is the better way. I think it was the better way for me, and I think um, that's kind of the the transitioning from traditional to uh, unorthodox that I'm trying to create is I'm not suggesting that everyone will become a better bowler just by bowling with two hands. But for me, if I bowled one-handed, not only was I terrible, but I I was (laughs) not having fun at all. I just didn't enjoy it. Now, Mm. I've mucked around a little bit growing up trying to bowl one-handed because you kind of want to just get a feel for everything. And as soon as I'd roll one or two shots... It bored me. So whenever someone tried to convert me, I always had this kind of an emotional attachment to one-handed bowling that if I do it, I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to have fun, um, and I'm more than likely not going to want to bowl. So I, uh, you know, I told mum and dad, I don't want to listen to these people, and they said, you, you know, you don't listen to us either. So you might as well, <laughs> you know, you might as well keep that trend happening. Um, and I just continued to bowl the way that I did. And um, you know, honestly, looking back. Some of the things that I, I, I guess, accidentally um, did, and what I mean by that in terms of technique, um, have been you know huge benefits to my game now. The way that I can generate ball speed and and the way that I do create um, a a very tight and repetitive swing all happened you know quite naturally and, and again accidentally from a kid. Well, you know, you bring up a really intangible point. I guess it's not an intangible, but it's something that you can put into words, which I think separates the great players from from the people who just do it. And that's having fun. When you watch, like I remember watching Ken Griffey Jr. play baseball through the 90s. Uh, you know, even watching LeBron James play basketball now, there's a level of fun. And maybe it's because the game comes so easy to them, but they're always out there having fun. And some of the best players at other sports just seem to be having fun. And I think you really just touched on it. Maybe for me, like this kind of brings the Jason Belmonte figure into focus for me because now I understand why you do what you do, why you kept doing what you do. And a lot of people don't say, oh, I'm just having so much fun out there. But that's really important. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. And, you know, for the most part, our working lives, um, you know, it's it's more than half of our life we spend working. So for me, I wanted to do something that I loved and, and I loved bowling. I'm very grateful of that. You know, I had um, a little bit of talent that I was able to work with and, and to pursue that career. But I, I often tell people, not just, you know, bowlers or, or sporting people, that, you know, you've got to find your passion. You've got to do what you do because it, it makes your life happier if you're working and, and doing something for a living that you truly, truly love. Now, there are days in which bowling, I want to bash it against the wall, you know, because <laughs> right. it's frustrating. But at the end of the day, I always ask myself, if you had to stop doing this, even on the worst day of bowling, if I had to stop doing that forever and do something else, would I be happier? And the answer is always no. I would always be happier bowling. So, hmm. uh, you know, I, I'd hope all your listeners, and I'm sure even yourself, I, I bet you love what you do. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't be doing it. And if you are doing it because of money or something else, then I think at some point you will find a, uh, an unfulfillment in your life. 
No, I, I totally agree. And I just think a lot of people don't recognize that, especially in sports. But you're like you just said, it can extend to everything people do is there has to be that element of fun, exciting. And that's the reason why you bowl with two hands, which is kind of cool. Uh, so let's now let's break this down, because there's a physical aspect of this. And I think a lot of people harp on the fact that it's two hands and this is like such a new thing. Let's talk about that for a second. But but as you alluded to previously, I really want to talk about the mental strategy that goes into bowling because I think a lot of people really believe you kind of toss a, a big heavy ball like Fred Flintstone down a lane you kind of hope that it hits most of the of the pins that are sitting down there but there's so much more to it than that so let's hit yeah. the, oh, oh go ahead you go ahead so I was just gonna say I mean to be a professional bowler or to be in the in the top echelon of, of bowlers around the world uh, you actually have to have a pretty good head on your shoulders. You, you have to be quite smart. Um, and the reason being is there's so many variables um, that happen every single day or every single shot um, that we throw. And, and what I mean by that is when you go to a bowling centre next and, and you roll a ball down the lane, but you always get told, don't go across that black line. And most people you see end up, you know, being on Australia's or America's Funniest Home videos because it's yeah. slippery and they fall over. But that oil is actually not just um, just a coat of slippery stuff. It's It can be designed into a shape. Um, so if you were to think of a lane and colour in the oil pattern, you can have a... A, a million or maybe an infinite number of oil patterns. Um, and I like to compare it to golf. Just like, just like a golf hole can be designed any way that you want to design a golf hole, you can design a bowling lane pattern the same way. You can have it designed so it hooks more or hooks less, hooks early, hooks later, difficult or easy. Um, and once you understand that, it then also gets you into this new world of, of – physics and angles um, and even chemistry by by what I mean by that is the bowling balls themselves um, are, are made differently. There are bowling balls that hook more and hook less. So you have to match your equipment to the oil pattern and then on top of that there are different types of oil that you have to uh, to learn. There are oil with more and less vis uh, viscosity, viscosity um, which ultimately will change that bowling ball's reaction. So you have to learn about the different types of oils, the different types of patterns, all of your equipment and different kinds of equipment. You can drill a bowling ball to design it to hook later, to hook earlier as well. So you, you're really kind of, um, you know, it becomes quite mind-blowing at how difficult and also how complex the competitive side of bowling is. So when I'm doing my thing, and I'm at, you know, on the pro tour. Um, it's not the social idea of just rolling the ball down the middle very straight and very accurately. Not only do I have to be accurate with my speeds and my, my, uh, my hook and also my targeting, I have to make sure I have the right equipment. I have to make sure that I'm standing in the right um, part of the lane. Like my, my ball shape is in the right. You can curve it more or less, or I can stand further left or further right. Um, it is extremely complicated, and if you get any one of those wrong, uh, you don't win the tournament because someone else will get it right, um, and you will lose. So there is an amazing part of bowling that is hidden from the rest of the world that I, I really wish that uh, we were able to, or, or that the, the general public were able to be educated on it, because I think we would get a lot more respect for what we do, but I think 
you would also appreciate and, and kind of find it more interesting than just this simple idea of rolling a heavy ball at some pins. No, I totally agree. And the other thing that you're missing, that you're just not saying, that you know, and I know, but most people don't know, which adds an even bigger level of difficulty to it, is you can't see the oil. It's not like, you know, a baseball pitcher throwing the ball. Even if you're only seeing it for half a second, you're seeing it. Um, you can't see oil on a lane. Right? It's why I think bowling is, is at, again, at the very elite level, uh, level of sports, is one of the most difficult games in the world because our environment, our oil pattern, dictates what happens to the bowling ball. And that oil is invisible to the naked eye. So... When we think we're in the right part of the lane and we're doing the right thing uh, with our bowling ball, we may not be. And we can only tell that based off the result that happens after we throw the ball. So if I'm aiming at the water in golf and I hit it into the water, well, then I know that's where I was aiming and it's my fault because I could have adjusted before I hit the shot. But in bowling, I may be thinking I'm aiming in the perfect place. But in actual fact, there could be a hazard waiting for my, for my bowling ball to hit it. So I will only know that, though, after the fact, uh, which then makes it even more difficult because now I have to make an adjustment on an invisible playing field. And I don't know if I'm making that adjustment into another hazard or if it's the right spot to be. So you, you really have to be very focused on, on you know, watching your bowling ball go down the lane. And you also have to be very skilled at reading an invisible oil pattern. Well, and the other thing, uh, <laughs> I know we're making this sound like it's an impossible sport for everyone, but, and we're going to get to more of this later on, that every time you throw the ball, especially you, I'm pointing right at you, Belmo, uh, when you throw the ball down, your ball is actually picking up that oil, and so every single time a ball is thrown, the oil pattern is, this invisible oil pattern is changing. So when you throw a shot, the way that the pro bowling tour works is you'll bowl two times the other person will bowl twice back and forth back and forth so you throw your second shot think you're adjusted but you got the other guy is going to be throwing into that oil pattern and he may adjust it before you throw your third shot it's crazy exactly and the reason why i think my competitors on tour hate me so much is because my rev rate uh is so much higher than the the average player there that I'm manipulating that oil pattern faster than normal. So people may make an adjustment at, say, the fifth frame or the seventh frame, but when I'm bowling with them, um, you know, they'll have to make those adjustments faster because of my rev rate. It's spinning so much more. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's altering that oil pattern faster than a general, uh, you know, the average player. So, yeah, typically I'm not well liked <laughs> when people have to bowl with me. They usually go, oh, i got to bowl with you. Oh, that's yeah. great. <laughs> well, so let's let's break some of this stuff down. Um, let's get this under control, Belmo. So, from a physical standpoint, let's discuss your two-handed bowling, and then let's pop back into. Actually, no, let's continue on with the equipment, and then as we describe that, I want to talk about how your particular throw, it, how it's affected by all those things. So, you talked about the oil. Uh, there's different kinds of oil. Let's talk about the oil patterns, because I think this is actually the one element of bowling that I think even amateur people who go every week aren't entirely familiar with, except from watching it on television. So when you say oil pattern, what kind of patterns can there be? What are you talking about? 
Right, well, that machine that goes down the lane, you may have seen it once or twice. It's an oiling machine. That oil machine is dispersing the oil in a, in a pattern, in a shape. Um, and it's again, it's invisible, so it's hard to see. But um, what happens, well, what you can do is you can uh, print um, on, onto paper uh, what shape that oil pattern is on the lane. So you can get a visual representation of what's on the lane. But like I said, it's, it's instantly changed once bowlers start bowling down because the oil does get manipulated. So what the oil pattern will do is it will do one of a few things. One, it will dictate scoring pace. If I have an easier oil pattern than a harder one, obviously I'm going to bowl higher scores. So it will dictate the scoring pattern. It will also dictate what equipment that I use. So I can't use a ball that is extremely aggressive and wants to hook a lot if there's not enough oil on the lane. So there has to be enough volume on the lane. And then the length of the oil pattern will typically decide where players play on the lane, where their targets are. If I have a very long oil pattern, then I don't want the bowling ball to be too close to the gutter, you know, halfway down the lane or three quarters of the way down the lane because it's just not going to curve back to the pocket. So I'm going to have to adjust my target points based on that oil pattern. It obviously also determines my equipment that I use. Like I said, whether I want to use a... Um, a stronger cover stock, which means that the outside of the bowling ball uh, will react with the oil stronger to create more curve or less curve. I can shine my equipment to make it go straighter, uh, or I can even scuff the ball slightly with like an Avalon pad, and I can create a, a little bit more friction if needed. So all of those changes all happen all because of one thing, the oil pad. And the lane is, is the same length everywhere, and the pins are the same uh, distance apart. So that part doesn't change. It's the part in between that can ultimately lead from, you know, perfect 300 games to, you know, sub 200 games and, and you know, really grinding difficult tournaments. Well, yes. The, now, the one thing we we forgot to miss here, and this is my – or the one thing we missed here that I forgot to mention is that the thing that we're talking about here, oil, what does that mean? What does that do? Well, what you're talking about is the friction, the, the chemical reaction between the ball – and the oil. So why is this important? Because if you throw a ball and it's everyone throws a ball that rotates, it's going to rotate at some point. The amount of oil determines where it rotates. When it's on the oil, when the ball is physically on the oil, it's basically hydroplaning, except it's on oil. So it's not really hydro, but it's oiloplaning, where it's not moving. It's just going in a straight line. It's gliding. It's sliding over the surface. When, it's, when it hits a point where the friction is catches up to it, then it starts to do the hooking and moving to the left or right, if you're a left-handed bowler, into the pins. Am I saying that correctly? Exactly. I can't bowl the way that I bowl at the level that I bowl if there's zero oil on the lane. If there is no part of the lane where my ball can slide down the lane before it reaches what we call a break point, uh, where, which is where the, the oil stops and the friction starts, where the dry part of the lane starts, um, you know, you would typically only be able to bowl a very straight delivery on a lane that had no oil because as soon as I want to curve, the ball isn't sliding or skidding mm -hmm. down the lane. So I'm not going to get far enough down the lane before the curve starts to happen. So it becomes um, very uh, counterproductive to put curve on the ball when you have less oil or no oil on the lane. 
That's very true. And now let's talk about your particular bowling style as it relates to the oil pattern. So your two-handed style allows you to do two things. And correct me if I'm wrong at any point here. You, with two hands, you get to, with your style, are able to throw it harder because you're essentially throwing it with two hands and spin it with two hands so you get a faster speed down lane, more revolutions on the ball, which equates to, and I don't know the physics here, but it equates to more power. So when you hit the pins, they move around a lot. So even if you were to throw an off shot, what you do is forgive, it's kind of forgiving, where even if you're off a little bit, because there's so much stuff going on, pin action is what they call it. That's what the professionals call it, Belmo. When pin action happens and these things are bouncing around all over, more pins get knocked down, which means you leave less pins up. And is, so is that correct? Am I ta- saying that correctly? The, it's one of the big advantages that I have. And the way that we would describe it is we would basically say that my pocket is larger to get a strike than a traditional player. Um, so that is certainly one of the advantages. One of the disadvantages of bowling the way that I do is because my rev rate is so high that everything is exaggerated. So if I miss a little bit left or a little bit right of target with my ball speed and my revolutions, then it can become quite erratic. And, and think of like a long drive contest golfer, you know, the guy who can hit it, you know, half a mile down the fairway. Well, if he's just a little bit off with his direction, it gets exaggerated at the end mm. of the fairway. So if he's not dead straight or, a, or close to it, then that ball is going to be, you know, for sure in the trees and, and maybe out of bounds. And the same thing with bowling is with my rev rate, with my ball speed, that on a very difficult oil pattern, if I'm not absolutely perfect, then my room for errors is much wider. So whilst if I'm close to the pocket, I get those off hits. I have to get there. If I'm not there, then I leave we the weirdest kinds of splits that most traditional players just, you know, they look at it and go, um, did you do that or did the machine just accidentally <laughs> lay the wrong amount of pins? <laughs> well, so let's talk about splits since you mentioned it. Because so a split is basically when two pins are left without a pin in between them. And they're very difficult shots. The most famous is a 7-10 where you have one on the far left side, one on the far right side. Now, with your style of bowl, is it easier or harder to pick up those types of splits? Um, Well, I can't compare if it's easier or harder because I I don't bowl one-handed. But I would say that the, the, the concept is the same. I mean, in order to make a split, and let's just take two pins, for example, uh, that are, you know, on one's on the left side, one's on the right side. If I have to slide that pin across, whether I'm bowling one-handed or two-handed, the point in which the bowling ball hits one of those pins has to be the same. Mm-hmm. So even if I'm, you know, just because I bowl two-handed, it doesn't mean I can hit anywhere on that pin and now the pin will, you know, divide gravity and, and, and the laws of physics and just bounce around and knock over that other pin. I still have to hit it on the correct side at the right angle to kind of throw it across the lane uh, to spare it. And that would be the same for a one-handed player. I would think that the the advantage that I might have is if there is a particular sp- uh, split that requires someone to curve the ball, to make that happen, um, it would probably be a little easier for me to create that curve because it's for me it's it's naturally easier to create that curve. So I think you know when it comes to splits, if you see anyone make a split, it's it's pure skill. You know, it's they aimed, they hit the right side of the pin, 
um, and they did their job. It has nothing to do with the style. Well, I, you do have to forgive me a little bit, Jason, because I, I, you're so good at bowling that I sometimes forget that you are still a slave to the laws of, of physics. So I, I, I apologize. <laughs> I'm working on it, all right? I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, so let, now, when you talk about the oil pattern, and we talk about bowlers going over it, and it's changing every time. With your rev rate, it's almost like a sponge, and it just sucks up that oil wherever the ball is traveling. Uh, when when we talk about the professional circuit, when it comes down to the finals, the stuff you see on TV, the top five bowlers for that particular tournament, maybe, I don't know if people know this or not, but you guys have bowled tons of games to come up to that point. You're working on averages, pin count, all the stuff you guys have maintained a level of excellence over the course of a couple of days. And I bring this up to say all day for two or three days, you're bowling on the same oil pattern. How does that work if the oil pattern changes so much? When does the oil get laid down? Does it ever get refreshed? And are you ever annoyed at where you're bowling throughout the day because you're just not making your shots? It's a really good question. And, and again, yeah, most people see bowling on TV as the step ladder final, the final couple of uh, games for the competitors that have made the TV show to win the title. But it, it, it is, in fact... Um, for every tournament that we play, um, there is a qualifying stage and a finals rounds um, in which, you know, you have to compete through. Now, some tournaments like the U.S. Open, the Tournament of Champions, um, the World Championship, pretty much all of our majors, uh, we compete for an entire week beforehand. Um, and there's multiple squads of bowlers. And in some cases, the oil pattern is laid just once in the day. Sometimes it's, it's refreshed for every squad. So it varies depending on the tournament. Um, and I guess the tournament director's rulings um, for that particular event. Um, but, you know, it's so hard to explain to somebody when they watch a player bowl a poor game on television um, and they immediately, you know, kind of single that game out as to say, well, that guy is no good, when, you know, you would very rarely do that to a golfer. I mean, if a golfer had one bad hole, you would never think, oh, this guy can't play golf. He's terrible. I can beat this guy. When, you know, because there's an element of understanding that, well, golf has played over, you know, three days of qualifying rounds um, and final rounds. So in bowling, we play for five days, six days, and we can bowl anywhere between four to seven hours a day um, to get wow. to those finals. So anyone that you see bowling on television has an incredible amount of skill an incredible amount of stamina and, and mental strength to survive um, these tournaments for that long. And, you know, they're bowling against um, anywhere between 100 and 400 competitors. So, you know, there's a big pool of bowlers that you're bowling against as well. So it's incredibly difficult. Um, so when you do see those guys on TV, cut them a little slack if they haven't performed under the lights, the TV and the pressure, because they're able to do it for an entire week. And it's, it's, it is. It makes bowling one of the most difficult sports, again, because imagine, you know, repeating something that many hours a day for that long and all of it will come down to one game um, and in some cases one shot. So it is extremely difficult to, I guess, express that understanding if you haven't, you know, walked in, in the bowler's shoes. But I hope I've been able to... Uh, to give a clear understanding that, you know, it isn't just, hey, it's Sunday, it's time to watch bowling. These guys are just bowling a couple of games. That's the end of it. You know, we are exhausted before we even start bowling on TV. 
Yeah, but let me let me play devil's advocate here for you, Belmo. When you look at other sports uh, and you talk about Sunday, let's take American football, for example. Those people practice all week as well. They can catch the passes. They can run the routes and whatever. If you are a champion, that is performing under pressure exactly when you are supposed to. So I happen to be a believer that there are two different types of bowlers. Uh, and, and there's a guy, Chris Barnes is a particular guy who is considered one of the best bowlers off TV, doesn't have the best record on TV, but most people would consider him to be one of the greatest bowlers around. I happen to believe that the people who, the champions, the true clutch players are the ones who can perform under those conditions. Uh, and even if the point you're making is correct that, you know, they've been bowling for seven hours for a whole week. But maybe it's just the American culture. But when you see someone do it when they're supposed to do it under the lights in front of a crowd, there's something really exciting about that. Oh, there's no question about that. I certainly am not suggesting that um, you know we aren't required to perform under pressure, or, or we can you know as as a bowler, you know it's unfair to uh, to put us into that position. We thrive on that position. I, I mean, I love feeling that pressure. My point before was simply. You know, bowlers tend to get gauged very quickly off of mm. one game. You know, it would be yeah. like if LeBron missed one layup, you wouldn't <laughs> think he was a terrible basketballer. You know, you would, because you, you've seen the hours or the minutes in that game in which he performed well. Where at bowling, you don't see the qualifying, so you don't get to see um, a player like Chris Barnes's talent and and his skill do and throw the clutch shots. You know, during the week. Now, don't get me wrong. If you ask him. And I can assure you his answer would be this. If you ask him, you know, would you like to be better on television? He's always going to say yes. And of course, and he's, he's made a lot of changes to his game uh, to, to rectify those errors. My point being was that um, we just don't get the amount of TV time compared to mm. other sports to illustrate the talent that we have. I think it's, it's, it's needed in sports that pressure that situational-based pressure where it's now or never. Um, and I think we bowlers love that. We just don't want to be crucified off of that one game. And, you know, again, you can crucify an athlete for throwing one bad shot or, or one, you know, one intercept pass. But ultimately, um, you still respect what talent they have to get them to that position. You can judge them based off that final throw but ultimately, no one will ever say that, oh, that guy's a terrible player because he failed on the very last shot. They may say he's not clutch, but they still respect the talent that he has. No, that's very true. What is funny is that in America, we have a, a channel called ESPN. And if LeBron missed a very crucial layup, I promise you that would be <laughs> the conversation for the next four days, uh, which is kind of crazy to me. Uh, I happen to be on your side. I think that especially in bowling, the repeatability is what makes people key. Just like in golf, hitting the shot where you want to hit it, that is what the difficult part of it is. Uh, so let's um, let's move into – I want to talk about – actual bowling balls uh, before we run out of time because there is so much technology that in you know the past 30 or 40 years that has gone into a bowling ball uh, that I think is would be really interesting for people to hear about. So when bowling first started um, back in the caveman days, it was actually a physical rock that was barely round. And since those days um, in prehistory, 
we've come to, you know, in the 70s, it was just a urethane, a black urethane ball with with a couple of holes in it. And today you've got seven people, you know, everyone had one ball. And now you've got people, you, you, you know this as well as anyone, who have several different types of balls drilled in a different way um, that have a different cover on the actual ball, the material that the ball is actually made out of on the inside, and then a particular core that can be symmetrical or asymmetrical that determines how the ball spins, how powerful it is, um, and, and where your fingers go, how they're oriented in, cor- in accordance to that core and on top of that finger grips whether you have a close grip a dist- you know far grip and the little holes things that go into the holes i've just annihilated everyone's brain with all this information can you dumb it down for uh, the average listener okay so the easiest way to describe bowling balls is bowling balls are designed to do different things and you can't have one bowling ball anymore um, or I suppose you could, but now that they're on the market, the cat is out of the bag. So if you were to just take one bowling ball to a tournament, you'd be heavily disadvantaged because your competitors would have different bowling balls designed to do different things, much like, and I know I keep using golf as a, as a comparison, but much like golf, you couldn't take a driver as the only club and expect to win uh, you know, the US Open. You have a range of clubs that all have their purpose, much like bowling balls do. So there are bowling balls designed to hook more or hook less, and that is all um, determined by the core, the, the weight block inside. There are stronger turning weight blocks. There are weaker turning weight blocks, and then uh, that core is then wrapped in a cover stock, and that cover stock is made out of material that can hook more or hook less, hook later, hook earlier, um, so all of these factors come into it to determine what, I guess, club, what ball you would use for certain patterns in certain moments. Um, the easiest way and the, probably the, the, the simplest, dumbest down way that I would say of an arsenal of bowling balls is you would have a plastic ball, which would go very, very straight. You couldn't turn it a whole lot, and that would be essentially your spare ball. You would have a ball that hooks a lot a ball that hooks medium amount, and then a ball that doesn't hook much at all, but maybe just a slight tail at the end. With those four bowling balls, you could do okay as an amateur player. <laughs> uh, but if you're trying to beat me, know that I have, you know, I have the same ball drilled five different ways. Um, and what I mean by that, not the, the, the singular ball. I mean, I have a, a type of ball. I have five of them. And each of them are drilled differently. Maybe it's only a foot or two difference in the way that that ball will react compared to the next. But sometimes that's the difference between striking and leaving a split. So if you're if you're going to bowl against me uh, in today's era, um, you know you also have to be quite um, stocked up with your equipment. Um, but I, I would relish the, the challenge to compete with one or two bowling balls only. I think that would be a, a very unique. Um, experience for a lot of players and it would certainly kind of I guess bring back um, a little bit more of the you know versatility of your hand positions and your speeds rather than just changing equipment well that's I think there is actually a plastic only tournament isn't there like a, a tournament where you can only use a plastic ball or am I there, there was yeah it used to be I think we had three tournaments like that um, a few years ago, and I loved it. I, I thought that was a great tournament. We were only allowed two plastic bowling balls uh, to roll with. And, you know, on tour especially, 
you, you saw a lot of the old time players that grew up throwing plastic. They really had a knack for it. And they, it's like riding the bike. They never forgot how to throw the plastic to strike. So I, I would love to bring that tournament back or, or even, you know, a tournament which limits um, equipment. I think that'd be a really great challenge for the pros. Um, but ultimately the way that the, the industry is, you know, we have our ball manufacturers and they, they invest back into the sport so much. They give to the bowlers so much. They sponsor tournaments. Um, you know, they, they give us so many perks without the ball manufacturers. Um, you know, there wouldn't be a pro tour. They, they invest a lot of sponsorship dollars into that. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, you never bite the hand that feeds you. So, um, you know, my personal sponsors, um, Storm in particular, um, I can't tell you how much money they, they invest back into professional bowling, amateur bowling, youth bowling, junior bowling. Um, so I feel like, you know, if, if, if allowing them to do their thing for us means that we have to use their equipment and all of their equipment on tour, then so be it. And they've got great equipment. They do. Well, I mean, I may be a little bit biased because, they just, <laughs> you know, you're only as good as the tools you have, I believe. You know, I, I feel like um, the career that I've had for the, the success that I've had, a lot of it has come down to choosing the right equipment, but choosing the right equipment that is best suited for me. And Storm, um, you know, have been such a great company to me and not just myself, but we're, we're dominating the wins on the Pro Tour. So, you know, you don't have to bowl two-handed to have success with Storm. You can bowl anyway. And it seems to be that, you know, our company is having a lot of success, um, you know, all through the ranks. Well, I want to tell you, I have a storm ball, and I'm dominating the amateur sector. So storms everywhere, Belmo. Storms everywhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about a couple of things that I think are fun about you uh, before we finish up here. Um, first of all, I just want to. So you have five of the same bowling ball drilled different ways. That's insane. How many? What's your collection? What's your active collection? Um, let's see. Well. I don't bring them all home. The weight restrictions on the airlines oh, will yeah. prevent me from bringing too many home. But, you know, I've, I've been known to have up to, you know, 20 or 30 bowling balls on the, uh, in my paddock area that, you know, I would call my own. And, you know, it, when, again, it's, when we're talking about the top echelon of sports, you need whatever little edge you can get against your competitors. You know, it's like the, the footballer that can run that 0.0 of a second faster than the next guy. You know, is it that much difference? Not to us, but to them, it's the difference between a touchdown and getting, you know, tackled. So mm. the same things happen with us. You know, we need um, a lot of variables to, to kind of fall into place for us to win. And one of them is equipment. So you want to give yourself the best possible chance to win. And if that means I've got to drill the same ball um, five different ways, then, you know, that's what I've got to do. Um, but, yeah, I don't like carrying all of my bowling balls around. So... I tend to try to limit the amount of bowling balls that I bring on tour just for the simple fact that, you know, carrying 15-pound bowling balls around and you've got 20 of them, it takes a while and it's quite annoying. Well, and also it's on Storm's dime, right? So, like, if they'll just keep sending you balls, <laughs> you just keep getting them drilled. Am I right? Uh, I, I haven't really looked at it like that, but I suppose you're right. I mean, you're know, <laughs> going to give them to me for free. I might as well just drill another one. Yeah, you just mention them on a podcast and send me a ball. It's fine. Um <laughs> So now let me mention, I think this may be the one thing that single-handedly gives you the biggest advantage. Correct me if I'm wrong, Belmo. 
But you are known for the man who has the facial fescue. It's a very unique look of yours. Um, is this going away anytime soon, or is this here to stay? And what is it? <laughs> <laughs> facial fescue. Uh, the, the, the term was coined by um, Randy Peterson, who is a ESPN color commentator for the PBA. Um, and I think he makes a point now to say it on every show that I'm on. <laughs> he does. Um, it's a little bit of the uh, the scruffy beard. Um, it, it, I mean, honestly, it started about six uh, six or seven years ago, and I just woke up and said, I'm not shaving today. This is annoying. It grows back so quick. I'm shaving every day. I think I can I can keep this look and just maintain it to some degree. So out of pure laziness, um, <laughs> I decided to not shave. And, and ultimately, you know, my wife uh, and my friends kept saying, actually, it kind of suits you. And, and the odd occasions that I have shaved in between, I look ridiculous. So um, I don't see the beard going away anytime soon. And... Uh, you know, I think if I was to shave, you know, every single day, not only would I be annoyed about shaving, but I think, um, you know, one of those, you know, recognizable facial features of mine, the facial fescue would be gone and I'd be terribly sad. And Randy wouldn't know what to say. No, Randy, you'd have to make up some other uh, coin a new term for my, you know, baby face. <laughs> so, Randy, I hope you're listening because I want to ask you another question, Jason. Would you be willing to put up the facial fescue up for charity if something ha Would you be willing to do that? Oh, 100%. I've shaved before. I mean, the, the, the last tournament of champions that um, I won was sponsored by Barbasol. And um, I told the the the, the uh, representative that if I was to win this tournament, that I would use Barbasol and shave. And it's exactly what I did. I went home, shaved, <laughs> thanked Barbasol for their sponsorship, and um, you know I had a shave. And for, I mean, for sure. I mean, it grows back literally, Daniel. I could shave now, and yeah. by the time we finish talking, there'd be. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, it's not like it's gone for six months. I'd be, you know, miserable for six months. I'd be miserable for seven hours, and then I'd be all right. So you've got the advantage. You're kind of like Teen Wolf, where, like, you grow this beard, <laughs> and you're all of a sudden an amazing athlete. That's, that's pretty funny. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, so last question here, and it's kind of ironic that you're talking about you grew the facial fescue out of laziness, because I would say that I would argue that you are anything but lazy. You are you were rook, since rookie of the year in 2008. You have three consecutive USBC Masters, which is a major major tournament. You have uh, two consecutive Player of the Year tournament. You've got the last year the Tournament of Champions winner. You have 104,000 points towards the 2015 Players uh, Player of the Year. You are you are the best bowler today. What is it like to be the greatest in the world at something? <laughs> Um, I don't know what it's, I don't, I honestly don't know how to answer that. I can tell you what I think what I, I guess my, my, my drive is, I mean, for me, I don't want to be a flash in the pan or I don't want to be a guy who was once, you know, just one time or at some point was okay. I, I want to leave a legacy behind. So, you know, that's been a dream of mine for a very long time that when I, do what I do. I don't want to be just good. I want to be great. So I do have a very strong work ethic, maybe not shaving ethic. but work. <laughs> yeah. So I practice a lot. I'm, I'm learning all the time. I'm constantly trying to better myself. And even after I win a major championship, you know, I'm working on my swing or I'm working on my footwork because you can always get better. 
And ultimately, you know, you're always chasing the guy at the top. And if you're complacent, then someone's going to knock you off that top, that, uh, you know, off the top of that mountain. So I keep pushing the bar up for myself to keep reaching higher. Um, and if I do that, then it's going to be even harder for the guys who right now are a little bit, you know, who are trying to reach me and knock me off that, that uh, mountain. It's going to be even harder for them if I keep pushing myself. So, um, you know, if someone has knocked me off the top of that mountain, then, you know, I can go up to them, shake their hand and say, well done, you deserve it because, you know, I've been pushing myself, I've been pushing you and you're able to, to beat me. And I would uh, never forgive myself if I just kick back, watch TV every day and just kind of went through life very blasé while I'm at the top because, you know, I, I do not want to uh, give my competitors any any more chances to beat me than, than they already have. No, that's fair. I, I do want to say something corny in closing here, Jason. Um you know, there. I hope people listening to this understand how difficult bowling is now. Uh, and I think much like Michael Jordan, much like Tiger Woods, I think people watching bowling right now are watching something really special. Not because you're a two-handed bowler, which just adds the flash and flair, the swagger that you need to draw attention. But I really think they're watching something special in you. And I really think that this will pick up mainstream um, viewers uh, just because you are so doggone good at what you do, Jason. I appreciate it. It's very kind of you. Thank you very much. And, yeah. uh, you know, one of the other the things I want to leave behind, one of the other legacies is that when I am dead and buried a long, long time from now, I hope that I've made bowling a better sport, you know, with my existence in it. So that's another thing that I'm always trying to do. That's why I'm talking to you right now, Daniel, trying to promote the game. Well, that you're going to do it. The, the listenership that I have, dedicated listeners. Uh, so how can people keep up with you, get in touch with you? Uh, you don't have to give out your mobile number or anything, but, you know, how do people stay in touch? Uh, you know, you can go to my website, jasonbelmonte.com. It has all the info to contact me there. Uh, but, you know, I'm on all the major social networkings. I, I do enjoy social networking. A lot of people hate it. I actually enjoy it. I like communicating with my fans. Um, so I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, Instagram, um, I think Twitter and Instagram is at J Belmo, B E L M O. Um, and Facebook, I think, is Belmo fan page. So if you type those in, you can search for me, follow me there. And, uh, you know, if you talk to me, I'm more than likely going to answer your question or your comment or say good day back. So, yeah, that's how you can find me digitally. And I'll have all these things up on the website. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show, man. And I think you've really brought an understanding to this really cool sport of bowling. And I hope people have a new appreciation for it thanks to you. Not a worry in the world anytime, Daniel. Thanks a lot. Uh, and thank you to everyone for listening. Have a good night.